Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. Every man whose heart moves him shall receive the contribution for me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skins, and a caseo wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the impod and the breastpiece, and let them make, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture you shall make. Thank you, Angela. Would you take a moment to pray with me before we examine this passage together? Father, we're humbled by the, the knowledge that since the beginning of time and as you've said in your word to the very last day, you have been doing one thing. You have been forming in the earth and you will ultimately form in the earth a sanctuary where your dwelling place might be with men. And, and knowing what I know about myself and all of my neighbors here on the earth, we, we don't deserve that. And so, Father, the first thing we want to do before we open your word is to confess to you that we are a stubborn and rebellious people and that this week, even, we, we've, we've shown that in many ways. We've been distrustful. We've loved the things of this life more than the treasures that we have in heaven. We've been unkind to our friends, our neighbors, our family. Uh, we've pursued sinful pleasures. Uh, so Lord, we, we just come before you acknowledging and, and knowing we need your grace. And so thank you that our righteousness before you is not based on our good deeds. Because if that were the case, we would just be hopeless, completely condemned. Thank you that our righteousness is found in Christ alone, who not only kept your commands, but actually perfectly fulfilled the demands of your covenant law. So that when we stand before you, there is no condemnation. And that there is nothing that the law can say against those who are in Christ. And Father, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we might know for sure that we belong to you. Thank you that in Christ we have all things. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And it's on the basis of that relationship that we have with you in Christ that we beg on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Uh, I think especially today of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world, many of whom are nameless on earth and famous in heaven. Father, we know that there are countless of these. And so I pray that your sweetness would be known to them in the midst of their suffering and that you would cause them to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and to love not their lives to the death. We think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are even preparing now to go among the unreached and even the hostile and to proclaim a merciful Savior. I pray that you would get them ready to bear witness to the goodness of Christ. I pray that you would bear, uh, cause them to bear fruit. Uh, we think of Trent and Kelly and uh, Pete and Cassie and Guy and Nancy, our uh, families who 
have been sent to the nations, and I pray that you would give them your grace and strength and, and your peace. I pray that they would find you to be their joy and that you would make them effective and give them hearts of endurance and patience. Uh, we pray for those in our congregation who are suffering today. I think of Marianne as she faces a procedure this week. Lord, give her your peace. We pray for healing completely and a successful surgery. Uh, we think of uh, Brother Kerry Woodring as he continues to, uh, to, to suffer and to, to face the trial of cancer. Uh, I pray that you would give him your grace and that you would heal his body. Uh, we think of our brother Ty. And I, I ask that in these next few hours that you would bring a reversal for him and that you would heal him now. We know that you can do all things and we just leave this in your hands because you are our father and we want to be your children and we want to trust you. Um, Lord, there are many others in similar circumstances and, and so we lift them up as well. But Father, I pray that you would open up your word today, help us to understand wonderful things out of your teaching and I pray that you would cause the meditations of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was seven years old, I got baptized. I, many of you have had this experience. I felt the water closing in around my face and then the coolness of the air as my pastor pulled me up out of the baptistry. Hundreds of times I've celebrated the Lord's Supper with God's people. I have chewed and swallowed the bread, representing the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted the tanginess of the fruit of the vine. Still have a lot to learn about the meaning and significance of communion, but that experience is not hard to remember. Countless times I've watched godly brothers and sisters suffer in the name of Jesus Christ and, and maintain a faithful and godly faith, even a joy in the midst of that suffering. And their examples have sort of given me a 3D perspective on what it means that Jesus suffered and died on my behalf. What do each of these experiences have in common? Experiences that many of you have had yourselves. Well, they're ways that God shows me the truths of the gospel. There are ways that God, he takes, takes me beyond the hearing of the word and he actually illustrates for me what is true about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, of course, is a, a, a visible display of the, the power of the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ who caused my old man to die and be buried with Christ and a new man to be raised and united with Christ. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the trials and temptations and faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in Christ is a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us and a call to discipleship. You know, this is a conservative, Bible-centered church here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. If you're, if you're new here, you should know that we value this book uh, just so much. It's hard to, to overstate how much we value this book. And in a church like ours, it, it, it's easy, I think, for us to be so conscientious about the value of the Word of God that we may, at times, downplay some of the, the illustrations and the images that God has given us in His Word that help us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Experiences. We Hear that word and we think, oh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that God, understanding our weakness as human beings, and knowing that we live in a world that is constantly beckoning us, gives us God-ordained experiences described in the word of God and explained by the word of God that help us to see what we might not otherwise see. This is what God is doing in the tabernacle. Uh, here in chapters 25 through 31 of the book of Exodus, a passage that we began to study two weeks ago, God is describing for the children of Israel this 
uh, magnificent tent, the, dab- the tabernacle, and the personnel of the tabernacle, and all the activities surrounding that. And what is he doing in that? God is recognizing that in our weakness, we're so easily distracted by the things that we face in this life. And so he engages more than just our ears with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives Israel this image, this picture that would help them to see and remember the experiences that they had around the foot of Sinai. And to remember that even though they are in the desert, even though they're wandering around the wilderness, even though they're about to enter into Canaan and face uh, enemies who want to kill them and tempted by the pleasures of sin, that they are going somewhere. Where are they going? The tabernacle, its furniture, its personnel, its corporate worship, all remind us, represent for us that God has been doing one thing in the world. That God, from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve, to the time of Jesus Christ, to the time when he will uh, bring all things to their full consummation, he's been doing one thing. And what is that one thing? God has been creating in the world a sanctuary where he might dwell with man, where he might share his glory, his goodness, his wonderful mercies with human beings so that we can bask in his glory and just just be in awe of who he is. This is what God has been doing from cover to cover in the Bible. As I said, we started to talk about this two weeks ago. Some of you were here for that, and we didn't get to finish up some of those applications. And so what I'd like to do today is sort of recap quickly what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in terms of the structure, the context, the content of this passage, uh, and then to uh, draw out of these chapters six remaining applications that we can take with us today. And you're going to feel a little bit like uh, this sermon is less of a bullet and more like buckshot. Usually a sermon, I try to make it more of a bullet. One point, and I drive it home. Uh, Some of you are saying, well, sometimes you do that and sometimes you don't. Uh, Today, I'm just warning you in advance, it's going to feel a little bit more scattered. Because there's just so much here, and uh, a lot of it, uh, we could spend weeks and weeks on any one of these points, but Uh, I think it would be edifying to us to kind of get to it all at once. And so we're going to pull each of these six applications from the passage and and probably every one of us in the room is going to get hit uh, by one of those uh, uh, shot. Okay, so uh, that's what we're going to do today. So what did we talk about a couple of weeks ago? First of all, uh, we, we examine the context and the structure of, of these chapters and we realize that what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in the tabernacle and what he's doing even today in the church of Jesus Christ is he is bringing heaven to earth. He's making his dwelling place with man. He's making the earth a global sanctuary wherein he might fellowship with redeemed human beings. See, we tend to think of the tabernacle, Exodus 25 through 31, and if you've read this in your Bible reading personally at at 5.30 in the morning, you tend to think of it perhaps as something that's a little bit difficult to understand and a little heavy to think about having to live out as if to say that God has, is giving the Israelites all these requirements and if they don't fulfill the demands of, of what he's talking about here in these chapters, that that's the basis on which he's going to reject them. And what I want to say is, what I want to point out and remind us of is that the, the description of the tabernacle here in these chapters is not the basis on which God's people earned the pleasure of God, earned the, the, the smile of God. No, the the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant has already been ratified and completed in chapter 24. And then beginning in chapter 25, God is actually graciously giving the children of Israel this uh, visible picture of the benefits of the covenant, something that they could take with them. And so if you think that going before the tabernacle every week or every several months for a feast was something that the... uh, that God's people, that godly people in the Old Covenant dreaded, then you may be misunderstanding the point. This is something that God gave, gave his people as a symbolic expression of the goal of the covenant. So it's a shadow. It's intended to be a reminder that we are not there yet, that there's something coming. And we talked about how that filters into two separate applications. First of all, when we gather in God's presence, we must gather in God's presence in holiness. 
God is separate from all things. He is completely transcendent from his creation. And uh, therefore, uh, when we come into his presence, we must be holy as well. And we made the observation that none of us really uh, meets up to that standard of, of holiness And so when we gather in God's presence, the second application that we took from it is that we must gather in God's presence in Christ. That Jesus Christ becomes the fulfillment of everything in these chapters. That the the candlestick and the table, the bread of the presence, the altar, the incense, everything points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes our righteousness. He is the one who makes us holy and accepted before the God of all the earth. And so that leaves us with six more applications. And I'm, I'm going to move through these pretty quickly here. Uh, but application number three is this. Pulling from these chapters, we must, in the first place, gather in God's presence reverently. We must gather in God's presence reverently. So think about our text. If you've had the chance to read through these six chapters, you know this. If you can imagine the kind of building that the tabernacle uh, is based on in this text, notice how God says in chapter 25, uh, yes, 25 verse 9, uh, make the tabernacle according to the pattern that I show you on the mountain. That is, there is this heavenly sanctuary and the tabernacle itself is modeled after that sanctuary and what a magnificent building it must have been. I mean, imagine you're, you're traveling around the desert and all you see is brown like different shades of brown and dust and rocks. And every once in a while you see a boulder. And that's like the level of excitement that you see. And then in the midst of the people of God is this tent that is just gloriously uh, decorated with gold and fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And uh, you smell the uh, the, the, the incense that's burned on the altar and you, you, you see the priests in their uh, glorious robes being uh, ministering in, in the tabernacle. Imagine what that would do to illustrate to you the, the glory and the beauty of, of God. I mean, it's a stark contrast. Uh, in chapter 28, verse 2, uh, look with me at chapter 28 verse 2 this chapter describes the garments that Aaron and his sons are to be decked out in and what does it say in chapter 28 verse 2 these garments are to be made for what for glory and for beauty for glory and for beauty Uh, verse 40 the phrase is repeated again all these garments are to be created for glory and for beauty in other words God is telling the children of Israel in a a place in which it's very difficult to survive, where it would be tempting to just be super practical, to do something, to build something, a corporate worship culture, in which so much of what is there is just for glory and for beauty. Why is that? Is that because God is just a stylish God? No, it's to illustrate for us weak human beings that he is a glorious God that he's tremendously holy, that we can't truly understand and grasp his greatness. Now, if you were to go to a place today, a a, a place of worship, and you saw the ministers dressed in these linen robes and gold, I mean, if I came to church wearing these kinds of robes and a turban that says holy to the Lord with gold all over the place and onyx and and sapphire and diamonds and all that stuff, you would think, what in the world is going on? Uh, We live in an age in uh, this new covenant era in which uh, certainly in a Baptist church, we would look at uh, a worship style like that and say, you know, that's just not my thing. (laughs) Obviously, we, we try to be frugal. We try to be simple in our worship. We try to be word-based in our worship. And so you may be tempted to say that this is just something for the old covenant. But even if I go to the New Testament, I see that we must enter God's uh, presence reverently. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, which comments directly on this passage. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, even in the new covenant, we are to remember that God is a, a gloriously holy God, a God that will not uh, allow any rivals into his presence, who will allow no sin before him. Or in the new covenant worship described in chapter 4 of Revelation, verses 2 through 11, listen to this. Yes, this is a vision, but this is the heavenly throne room described Two Christians at a time after the cross of Jesus Christ. John says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. A throne with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, in front and behind, uh, uh, there were four living creatures uh, with, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now I recognize that this is a description of a worship service in heaven. But think about our worship. Does our worship even come close to recognizing the glory and the beauty of God? Does our wor- is our worship reverent? When we gather in God's presence, do we do so reverently? You know, when I was uh, coming up in ministry, one of the things that was a main area of my responsibility was children's ministry. And one of the things that I observed in my own parenting, as our kids were, were young at the time, and in, in many other parents was this question that we would tend to ask our children at the end of church every single Sunday. You're going to the car, and you're trying to kind of herd the cats, right? And you finally get everybody buckled in, and you start driving out of the parking lot, and then what do you ask your children? Did you have, did you have fun at church today? Am I the only person that's ever asked that of your kids? Did you have fun at church today? In fact, when I was in seminary, I took a couple of classes, read read some books about how to do ministry well, and many of them would encourage us to say, hey, think about what your parents are going to ask. They're going to ask their kids, did you have fun at church today? You know, that question betrays a mentality toward our worship, doesn't it? Even at the age of, of young children, that often our priorities in worship are different from God's priorities. And what I purposed in my heart when I was doing children's ministry is not to have a fun children's ministry, not to have a boring children's ministry either. But I recognize that even children, even small children, recognize that the best things in life are neither fun nor boring. They're much better than that. And so what we tried to do was just illustrate in a way that a child could understand that God is holy, that he's wonderful, that he's eternal, that his mercy is everlasting. And even though these concepts are difficult for us to grasp, even a small child can begin to understand how these things are wonderful and how they must give their lives to this God. Unfortunately, in our churches today, it's possible that decades of asking, did you have fun at church today? has produced adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 
who are still asking the same question. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you asked yourself, did I have fun at church today? Maybe you didn't put it in those words. But how often do we put our priorities, our experiences, our feelings above the reverent worship of our God who is a consuming fire? One of the takeaways I I pull from these chapters is that we must gather in God's presence reverently. Application number two, we must gather in God's presence generously. We must gather in God's presence generously. Notice in the passage that Angela read earlier in the service in chapter 25 that the people were asked to take a contribution. That is, they were to look at their possessions and following however their heart was moved, take some of those possessions and bring them to a central place and give them to the building of the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, some of you are kind of like bracing yourselves, like, is this going to be about the building project or something like that? Okay, just trust me, all right? It's not going it's not going to be about the building project yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Keep in mind, though, in all seriousness, these are freed slaves. They have never had anything except for what they were given by the Egyptians on the way out the door when they were redeemed from slavery. So these are people who, for the first time in their lives, many of them, had something nice. And now Moses is going to go to them at the instruction of the Lord and say, hey, as your heart moves you, I want you to take that nice thing that you have, and as God puts it in your heart, I want you to take from those nice things, and I want you to bring it to the central sanctuary, and, and, and we're going to make a sanctuary out of those things, and, and you're just going to have to say goodbye to those possessions. Well, that would take a move of the heart, wouldn't it? That would take exactly what's described here. And so what I want to ask is, how were the people moved? How were their hearts moved to do this thing uh, as we see, uh, as we get to the end of the book of Exodus? And it seems to me that there are at least five ways that their hearts are moved. Uh, They're not moved by guilt or manipulation. They're not moved by arm twisting. They're not moved by taking verses out of context. Here are five ways that moved their hearts. First of all, the people of God were moved with the awe and the majesty of God. So in other words, they saw their things and they looked on the top of Mount Sinai and and saw the peals of thunder and the flashing lights and they thought, this God, this God who rescued me out of the hand of slavery and, and brought me over the Red Sea is worth far more than all of the possessions that I have in my tent. And so I am just so overwhelmed with the great majesty and wonder and beauty and glory of this God that I just look at my valuables and they're worthless in comparison. And therefore, it's no problem for me to bring them before the Lord because of the worth and the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God. Their hearts were moved with the awe and the majesty of God. Secondly, their hearts were moved with gratitude for their salvation. Here's a God who brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who brought me over the Red Sea, who saved my life and my children, who's bringing me into a good land, who's entering into a covenant relationship with me, and hearts moved with gratitude for God's salvation led them to generous giving. Thirdly, their hearts were moved toward righteous living. Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his little book, The Treasure Principle, if you haven't read that, you, I think, can find it in our library, and you need to check it out. He makes the point that Jesus doesn't say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He says, where, you, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, when you take the step to generously give in the way that God the Spirit has given you in your heart to do, to do then that is going to begin to transform your desires. That's going to begin to transform you toward righteous living. That's going to change your heart, and your heart's not going to be set on the things of this life. It's going to lead you to have your heart set on the things of God. So they were moved in their heart toward righteous living, number three. Number four, they were moved to receive a blessing. Throughout Scripture, God shows many times that those who are generous are blessed. 
Jesus said it's more, it's more blessed to, uh, to give than to receive. Now these blessings may or may not have been material, but they recognize that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And knowing that that is the case, they, were, they had an easy time pulling from their possessions to give in the worship of the Lord. Finally, they were moved to be a small part of something great. You know, so often in our individualistic society today, we are uh, obsessed with ourselves. And we want to be the big person. We want to be in the center of the world. And what the Israelites recognized as God moved in their hearts was that he is big and they're small. That he's doing something wonderful and they get to be a small part of it. You see, when we recognize that we're not the big deal that we think we often are, but that God is a big deal, it's much easier to live generously. It's much easier to gather in God's presence with generosity. You say, why are we not more generous? Because, frankly, the reason we're not generous is because our hearts haven't moved us. I can get up here and I can say all kinds of things to... uh, get you to give money to the church or, or a building project or whatever. And it probably would work. But the truth of the matter is, unless God works in your heart in these five ways, we're not going to be able to enter God's presence generously. Maybe it's because we're more enamored with the things of this life than our God. Uh, maybe it's because we're ungrateful, like the nine lepers who Jesus healed and they walked away unthankful. Maybe it's because we don't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but we're anxious about many things. Maybe we're unwilling to be a small part of something big. We want to be big. See, God has always loved a cheerful giver. He is going to give specific instructions to the children of Israel, yes, about how much they give. And there's a lot of discussion and debate about how that should play into the church age today. But one thing we can be sure of is that when we gather in God's presence, we must do so generously. Uh, We must gather in God's presence reverently, generously, and thirdly, we must gather in God's presence obediently. We must gather in God's presence obediently. Look at verse 9 of chapter 25. What does God say? Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Throughout these chapters, again and again, God reminds Moses, you you do this exactly as I tell you. Exactly as I show you. Uh, Notice as well that if you read on in chapter 25, that the Ark of the Covenant is the central component of the worship of God. This is the thing that's situated in the Holy of Holies. God says over the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that's where I'm going to meet with my people and how is that Ark of the Covenant described? It's, it's called the Ark of the Testimony. Look, for example, in verses 21 and 22. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. In other words, where does God meet with us? How does God meet with us? He does so by speaking. He does so in his word. And the Ark of the Testimony is an example of that. And then think about all the details that he's giving here in these chapters. I mean, obviously God cares about the way that he's worshipped. Think, for example, about the consequences for disobedience. Those who take the uh, anointing oil that God describes in chapter 30 and misuse it turn it into some kind of perfume that they can wear you know, on a date. The consequences for that are severe. That person's going to be cut off from his people. So what does all this tell me? It tells me that God knows what kind of worship he wants, and he makes it clear. You know, in, in the American church today, in our church perhaps, it's easy for us, for whatever reason, to make the assumption that all the different ways of doing worship, because there is a great variety within the American church, all these different decisions that we need to make about how we do worship 
are matters of preference. That God doesn't care. And the truth of the matter is that some of those things are matters of preference. And, and they're not talked about directly in Scripture. But so many of these things we relegate to the area of preference that God has made specific instructions about in his word. And the question of the matter is, when it's popular and when it's not, when it's easy and when it's not, are we going to give worship to God obediently or are we going to assume that we know better than him because of the culture in which we live? Sexual ethics is not a matter of preference. Worship that is biblically accurate and not mixed in with error is not a matter of preference. Following God's instructions regarding gender roles in the church is not a matter of preference. See, what this comes down to is, when are we going to recognize, this is what the real issue is, when are we going to recognize that God's commands, God's instructions are good for us? See, we tend to take all of God's commands and we lump them in with all of man's traditions and say that's legalism. But the truth of the matter is that our Heavenly Father loves us very much as his children and he recognizes that as children we need guidance. And so he gives us his commands. And he says, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is how I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice every single day of your life. This is how I want you to gather in my presence. And when he does so, we must listen. We must gather in God's presence obediently. So often we're like bratty children. Why are you so mean to me, God? Why can't I have that bag of Skittles at 9 p.m. on Tuesday night? And, and, and a loving parent would say, just do what I say. <laughs> You're too tired to even think. Are we going to live obediently? 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We must enter God's presence reverently, generously, and obediently. Fourthly, we must gather in God's presence corporately. We must gather in God's presence corporately. Now, I'm going to move a little bit quickly and kind of combine these this application with the next one. Uh, but notice the assumption that is throughout these chapters uh, is that the worship of God involves the whole community of the faithful. So that's something that would have been axiomatic at any other point in church history, but for some reason has fallen on hard times in our modern life. Uh, chapter 29 uh, describes the morning and evening sacrifice, and God says, there will I meet with the people of Israel. Corporate worship. Uh, chapter 31, verse 6, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. It's a corporate effort. It's a communal effort. Uh, the contributions, they're all pulled together to build this one sanctuary for the entire nation. So what God is expecting his people to do is to enter his presence, not just as individuals, but as a community. And the same is true in the New Covenant. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. He goes and he talks about the church, the congregation of God's people, and how we're supposed to function in the church. And then he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. What he's not saying is that when you're alone that he leaves. He's saying that there's something unique about the gathered church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that... Uh, is, is a special meeting with God. Uh, but we live in an era of expressive individualism. Corporate life is seen as unnecessary. Uh, in some cases, people look at it as even harmful and abusive. What do we do when we feel vulnerable? When we feel like people are looking at us, we withdraw, right? We get by ourselves. In the exact moment when we need to lean in to community. Uh, this tendency is dangerous. Proverbs 18, verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So before I dig deep into that, let me just give you the next one because these kind of go together. Application number five, we must gather in God's presence regularly. We must gather in God's presence regularly. Uh, notice for example, in 28, 29, and 30, 
uh, the, the repeated use of the phrase regular or regularly in these chapters. And then at the end of chapter 31, at the very end of our six-chapter section here in the book of Exodus, you have this really direct description of the Sabbath, this command to keep the Sabbath. Uh, so what does all this mean? How does all this pull together? I, I was asking a couple of brothers a few weeks ago, you know, what's your take on the Sabbath? What do you do to, to celebrate the Sabbath? Or do you keep the Sabbath at all? And uh, one of the guys that was, was there sort of sarcastically said, uh, my practical theology is to ignore the Sabbath and feel guilty about it. And I think that many of us find ourselves in the same place. And I, I want you to keep the Sabbath and not feel guilty about it. So let me just really quick help us understand what does this passage mean for us today. Uh, if you look at chapter 31, notice uh, in verse, uh, verses 12 and following, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. What does God say the Sabbath is? It is a sign between the nation of Israel and the Lord to, to show the world and to remind them that they belong to him in, a, in keeping with this Mosaic covenant. You see, throughout Scripture, God has always, uh, when, he, when he issues a covenant, he gives a sign to go along with that covenant. It was the same in Abraham's day. God went, entered into a covenant with Abraham and the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And so that, that was the outward sign. God entered into a covenant with Noah, and the sign was this rainbow that he uh, brought about in the clouds. And the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant, just like circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant. Question, do we maintain the sign of circumcision today? I mean, read Galatians. No. Why? Because is, is it because God changed his mind? Or is it because that sign was fulfilled in Christ and that we must have circumcised hearts instead of worrying about the body? And, and it's the same way with the Sabbath. Do we keep the Sabbath? Well, yes and no. We keep the Sabbath in Christ, just like we meet the entire demands of the entire Mosaic Covenant in Christ. Jesus came and he said, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And so Jesus fulfills the commands of the Mosaic Covenant, and so the sign that goes along with the Mosaic Covenant becomes fulfilled in Christ as well. Some of you say, well, what about the creation order? Doesn't the Sabbath predate the law? And it's true that God rested on the seventh day. But think about this. Nothing in Genesis 1 commands us to keep the Sabbath. This is something that God did. If the Sabbath were a command for today, the patriarchs would have had to follow it. They never had to follow the Sabbath command. Uh, all of the stuff that happens in Genesis 1 is not normative for today. For example, God told the people to, uh, told Adam and Eve to cultivate the ground. Is it necessary for all of us to farm and cultivate the ground? I, I don't think so. And so just because it's in Genesis chapter 1 does not necessarily mean that we need to observe it in the same way as God's old covenant people today. So if you're a rule follower like me, you're someone that likes to be told exactly what to do and then you keep those commands and then you're, you're good to go, you're, you're, you're going to be a little bit disappointed with the Bible's teaching on this particular command. Because what God... The, the Sabbath command is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but there remains, even in the New Covenant era, uh, this example of rhythm, rest and work, gathering and scattering. We, we know that this is good. So there is a way in which we must come before the Lord. We must do so corporately and regularly. And it seems to me that this is one area in which we are very, much in need of some help. So let me give you some diagnostic questions. You might want to write these down. Am I gathering in God's presence sporadically or regularly? 
And by the way, a pastor is not going to come knock on your door and say, you have entered sporadic territory. (laughs) It's on you. (laughs) It's between you and the Lord. Am I gathering in God's presence regularly or sporadically? Question number two, am I being honest with myself and my spiritual leaders about why I've been missing the gathering of God's people? Am I being honest with myself and my spiritual leaders about why I've been missing from the gathering of God's people? I just have to tell you, there are people in my short time in ministry experience that I thought were really close to me, close friends, who were rowing with me and, and striving with me in the faith of the gospel, and they just stopped coming to church. So if you think that I know why you're not coming, I don't. <laughs> You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with your spiritual leaders about why it is that you haven't been gathering with the people of God. Question number three, is it possible that I am working too much? Is it possible that I'm working too much or playing too much? Trying to accomplish too many things. Am I being Martha when I need to be Mary? Now, everyone has different abilities when it comes to productivity, but in our culture, we idolize productivity. We idolize accomplishment. We idolize getting and squeezing all these things into our day. You only live once. And is it possible that we have been doing too much? And it's preventing us from the kind of rhythm that God prescribes in his word. Question number four. Do my current rhythms of rest and work gathering and scattering, communicate to the people I love that Christ is my most precious treasure. Do my personal habits, my rhythms of rest and work, gathering and scattering, communicate to the people I love, my children, my spouse, that Christ is my most precious treasure or that something else is? There are a lot of other questions that we could ask, but it's certainly the case uh, drawing from this passage that we must gather in God's presence corporately and regularly. Finally, we must gather in God's presence expectantly. We must gather in God's presence expectantly. You see, the whole point of the tabernacle worship, once again, was to remind the people of God that all the things that we see in this life are not the final answer to the world's problems and that this is not the end, but that there will be a day when this sanctuary symbolically represented in the tabernacle, symbolically represented in the church of Jesus Christ, the, the kind of sanctuary that is described at the end of the book of Revelation is a place that is far more holy, far more wonderful, far more incredibly filled with the glory of the Lord than anything that we could imagine in the here and now. And that everything that God calls us to do is going there. Do you remember what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper? He said, do this in remembrance of me until I what? Until I come. Whenever we gather in in the presence of God, as a church, here's what we're doing. We are gathering as an embassy, not only of heaven, but we are gathering as an embassy of a future in the Lord Jesus Christ. The day when God's dwelling place will be with man. See, uh, every time we uh, gather in, 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 in Christ, we're testifying to that hope. Following Christ has a, a lot of benefits in the here and now, but we also suffer. And my question is, what is going to sustain us as we walk through that suffering? Here's the answer. It's the knowledge that all of that suffering is unwasted and will one day give way to a much more weighty pleasure and joy in the presence of God in the new creation. So I know we move very quickly through these six applications and you may need some time to kind of think through how they relate to your life personally. But let me just leave us with two questions. Number one, are you in Christ? 
Are you in Christ? Because that new creation day is coming and we're told in the book of Revelation that there is no unbelieving thing, no unholy thing that's going to be able to enter that kingdom. And so the urgency is there that we, we must be in Christ. If we're going to enter God's presence in holiness, we must be in Christ. Are you in Christ? But maybe if you're a believer and you know that you're in Christ, one of these applications has kind of hit you and, and you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit today. And so what I'd like for us to do is just take a moment to silently uh, do some business before the Lord personally and ask him to show us how to move forward in faithfulness uh, to these things. So would you pray with me before the Lord right now? God, we, we can't even begin to do justice to all the detail and all of the, the wonderful goodness that's described for us here in these chapters. And when we compare our lives to what you've described here in these, in these words, uh, we're convicted. We often come before you disobediently as if we knew better than you. We come before you uh, wanting to have a relationship with you but not with your people. We come before you with a stingy heart hoarding the things that you've given us. We come before you wanting to get all out of this life and ignoring the life to come. And so, Father, I pray that you would change us today by your word. Spirit, we welcome your power and your convicting presence in our hearts. Lord, we also pray that if any in this room today find themselves far from you, I pray that today would be the day they find themselves falling on their face in humility and faith before the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.